You have been made with a purpose and given specific gifts to accomplish your mission. This is Requip. Stay tuned to gain insights to prepare, equip, and empower you to do the work of ministry. It's a time for challenging assumptions. I mean, everything we're beginning to see we're seeing revival come from. We're, we're seeing things happen in many different places from Asbury Revival and in other places. Maybe it's spreading. And even at the church that I'm at, one of the pastors at New Beginnings Church, we're seeing God do things that we're just surprised. And we are seeing a lot of people coming, a lot of people coming to faith. We're seeing a lot of people start to get involved and people being matured spiritually. And just to see that development, to think people coming to the Lord and coming closer to the Lord, kind of breaking out of that sort of cultural Christianity and walking in the faith, like actively walking after Jesus. I was just speaking on a college campus uh, just last night, actually, and just speaking to them and seeing them worship Jesus. And the Apostle John is going to talk about this as we're studying through 1 John. We're going to finish out chapter 1 and then start in chapter 2. We're going to bounce around a little bit, but hang in there because we're going to find some things out. And if you haven't yet subscribed, I want to encourage you to do that. So make sure you get the next one and and make sure you turn on that notification so you, you get those right away. And we want this to be a supplement for you. We want this to be a gift for you. But not only that, you consume it. Please don't just do that. Don't just be a consumer. As we're going to talk about here, God is calling us to be active participants. He's using people to reach the lost, to reach people that are far from God, to reach people that want nothing to do with them. He's saying, go after them. And he's using people. And the way that revival happens is only through repentance. There's never revival that comes from anything other than repentance. And John is going to challenge some assumptions that we might have. And he's challenging them here. He's speaking to this congregation. He's speaking to this church, and this likely would have been passed around to many different churches, and we can take this as our own as well. Say, man, God is speaking to me. And we, in fact, we know that God's word is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, and it is piercing us if you allow it and if you let God speak to you. And I'm so excited about what's happening. And John is speaking and writing to a congregation and an organization where the faith was being very diluted. Their faith was being diluted, and there was clearly some mixed teaching that was coming in, and things were beginning to get off course a little bit. So what's the relevance to us today? Today, we see followers of Jesus. But they say we're unhitched from the Old Testament, which Jesus proclaimed. Many of us say we're Christians, but we hate other races. We say that we follow Jesus, but we kill the unborn at a rate that would make the Holocaust seem tame. We love going to Israel and the Holy Land, but we inherently think that America is 
favored, that it is God's favorite place. We think that it's God's country, unknowingly contradicting the scriptures. They turned into spectators rather than participators in what God was doing. And we think the American dream is somehow synonymous with God's will all the time. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, and it says, This is the message that you've heard from him, meaning Jesus. And we declare to you, God is light and there is no darkness within him. And John is constantly, if you haven't picked up this theme, John is constantly pointing to authority that doesn't come from him. He continues to point to an authority that is beyond him. He never says, I'm the holy man. I'm the guy with the information. God downloaded this information to me, and and I know everything. I've got the secret knowledge, and you got to keep coming to me. Too often, leaders, church leaders, make it where people need to keep coming back to them. But instead, we're called to appeal to authority above us and empower people to go out and use their gifts that God's equipped them to do. And John was even one of the witnesses. That's all he's saying. He's saying, I'm a witness to this. I'm not the authority. I'm not the one in charge. I'm not the guy on the top of the pyramid. I'm not the one making all the decisions. I'm not on the throne, but I have this authority because it's from someone else. It's not my own. And John was even one of the top three disciples. The Bible actually refers to John as the one whom Jesus loved. John was one of his top three disciples, Peter, James, and John. John was taken to the mountain of transfiguration where Jesus was seen in all his glory while he was still in the flesh before he rose again on the third day. John saw that. John was even given responsibility to care for Jesus' mother Mary when everyone left Jesus. While Jesus was being crucified, John stayed. When everyone left, John stayed. And then after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, the apostles were sent out and John, all of his friends, were killed off. All of them were killed for their faith, but John stayed. And he stayed around. And he was eventually led to an internment camp where he lived out his long life. He was a friend that stayed. John was somebody that stayed. Be the kind of friend that stays. Be the kind of friend that when everyone's talking about your friend behind your back, you're not. When everyone is insulting them, you're not. When everyone starts questioning them, you don't. And jumping down to 1 John chapter 2, verse 9 through 11, he makes it clear that your brothers and sister in Christ are not always who you think they are. Because sometimes, a lot of times, we elevate our earthly relationships, our blood relationships, over those who have a relationship with Jesus. Have you ever noticed, especially around holidays or anything like that, there's people that are maybe our blood relatives that have no business having access around our kids, we would never let that crazy uncle, we would never let that crazy parent or brother, we would never let them around our kids. 
if they weren't our blood relatives because we have a misconception of who should have access into our family. So he's not saying stay around for that. He's not saying you just stick around for that kind of thing. But he makes a clear distinction of how you know who's really around you. And he gets into this and he says, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother and sister, meaning he's not talking about blood, he's talking about followers of Jesus in the community of faith is what he's talking about. But he's saying anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother or sister is still in darkness. I don't care what they say, they're still in darkness. doesn't matter what they proclaim, they're still in darkness. If they have hate for their Christian brother or sister, anyone who loves their brother or sister lives in the light. And there is nothing in them that makes them stumble. But anyone who hates their brother and sister is in darkness and walks around in darkness. He's saying people that say they're following Jesus, but when you're not around, they're talking about you. When you're not around, they're second-guessing you. They're questioning you. They're saying they're, they're sowing seeds of doubt about you. They're not building you up. Man, be the kind of friend and the follower of Jesus when your brothers and sisters in Christ, when someone's not around, you're building them up. You're encouraging them. I think you need to talk to them directly. I think you need to go directly to them. Not we need to subvert that. We need to talk about them. Now, gossip, if you're wondering what gossip is, gossip is when you're talking about somebody with no intention to talk to that person. John is talking about a fellowship that is far beyond a denominational or abomination that you may ascribe to, but people will hold their dear life to some sort of organization, to some sort of church brand, or some sort of affiliation, or maybe even some quote-unquote pastor that they think is somebody important. They will even break fellowship with actual believers in Jesus Christ, their actual brothers and sisters, for the sake of holding on to something that they held close in their past. See it all the time. Years ago, and I, and I heard about somebody that went through this, and um, basically what had happened, the, the pastor was in this crisis situation, and leadership stepped in. His accountability stepped in and said, you need to step out. You need to get some boundaries in your life. You need to get some margins in your life. You need to get some things to make it healthy. The church isn't healthy. You're not healthy. The family isn't working. We want to help you. And he said, no, I don't care what you say because my identity is in this. This is who I am. You can't take this away from me. Okay, that's fine and that's good. And these people just decided to leave. We're just, we're not going to, if you're going to be in rebellion, we're not going to be in rebellion with you because we're going to follow the Lord. And that's fine and good, and we can separate, and we can, and we can part ways. That's fine and good. But the problem comes in when there are people that were supposedly followers of Jesus, and you are like closer than blood brothers. John is saying that doesn't even apply. It's really spiritual relationships. That's what's mattered. It's who's your brother and sister in Christ. That's the type of fellowship that we're talking about. And these people would rather break their fellowship with Christ so they could hold on to their church memory. 
so they could continue to elevate their pastor, that they can keep following a man. And so they'll make up all sorts of stories. They'll start to make up all these things. Instead of talking to you, they're going to talk about you. Instead of asking questions directly, they're going to make assumptions about you. And so God is showing us very clearly here, how do you know if someone's in darkness? And how do you know if someone's walking in the light? But the question becomes, how do you know that you're saved? I just want you to ponder that. Just think about that for a moment. How do you know that you're saved? I used to ask this question. I was growing up in many years. I would ask this question. How do you know that you're saved? And how do I know that I'm really saved? Maybe I have these doubts. And, and if you're having those doubts, maybe you have those questions. How do I actually know? How do I really know that I'm saved? I would ask this to leaders and pastors and well-meaning Christians, and they would often repeat the same thing that I think that they were heard from many other things. They would say, well, did you pray a prayer once? Did you ask Jesus into your heart? 1 John chapter 1, verse 6 and 7 says it this way, If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. So I want to ask you the question again. How do you know that you're saved? Because people would go back and say, well, did you, was there one point in your life that you accepted him? The question isn't, is there one point in your life that you accept him? The question should be, are you following him now? The evidence that you're in love with him is that you're following him now, not that you think that you made a commitment at one point in your life. He never tells you, this is how you know if you're saved, by looking somewhere in the past. He says, are you walking with him now? He's trying to encourage you. Man, I don't know who, who is out there, who is watching, who is listening right now, and you, you've had those same kind of thoughts that I had. You had these same kind of things. Am I really saved? And you, you get this false sense of security for a little bit. It would stave off for a little bit because, you oh, yeah, yeah I, I remember. I wrote my Bible one time about the date when I was saved. I remember I long back. I look back at this time when I was saved. But the Bible never tells you that. God never tells you to look back in the past at one moment in history when you may have put your faith in Jesus. The evidence that you are saved is that you're still following him now. It's exactly what he's saying. It's exactly what he's saying. Now, I, I affirm what God's word says. It's a moment in time. Ephesians 2.8, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And he continues, this, not yourselves, it's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. You definitely don't work for your salvation, but you most certainly will work from your salvation. And the Bible also says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, Romans 10, 13. So I affirm that. And John is showing something that we almost never are taught. The question is, how do you know that you're saved? The context is in light of all these people that are in this church, or at least they're having fellowship, all these people that they're say they're following Jesus, they come to the Sunday service, they give regularly, they speak fluent Christianese. John is not telling you how to pick out someone else's sin, though. It's not what he's saying. 
He's not asking you, how do you pick out someone else's sin? How do you determine if someone else is saved? He's not saying that at all. He's pointing out the obvious truth that you cannot fully tell in many cases who's a follower of Jesus and who isn't. That's why he's writing this. That's why he's saying all this, because you can't always tell. I got to give you some additional teaching. I got to tell you some more things because you just can't always tell. The question is, how do you know you aren't one of them? That's the question. How do you know you're not one of them? There was this movie that makes me think of this. There was this movie years ago in the, what was it, the mid-90s called The Sixth Sense. It was a movie that scared all of us kids to death. It was with Bruce Willis, and he was a detective, and he was with this boy that this boy apparently saw dead people. And they would go and investigate, and Bruce Willis is working with this boy trying to figure out what it is, but the boy always seemed a little off. He always seemed scared and frightened, and and Bruce Willis trying to figure it out, and then he was trying to find these, and he would even see some of these dead people, and he would even interact with some of these things and, and trying to figure it out everything that was happening and he said i see dead people but the professional detective who was looking for the dead people was dead himself the one that was trying to look at everybody else's deadness he didn't realize he was actually dead himself and the question is is that us so he tells us we're going to get into this but he says you need to test yourself you're not testing other people you need to test yourself to see if you're really in the faith. So the question becomes, how do you test yourself? Second Corinthians chapter 13 verse 5 says, test yourself to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves or do you not recognize that this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test, something we almost never hear. We almost never hear anything like that. Do we pass the test? But 1 John chapter 2, verse 3 through 6, and he says, We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his words, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. We're not talking about other people. We're not talking about figuring out where everybody else stands and trying to rationalize and understand and and try to pick out other people's sins or trying to see, man, are you really in the faith or not? Are you saying, what about you? This is how you know if you are. Number six, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus lived. And Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? So if you're anything like me, and how I've been in years years past, are you slaved but sloppy? Are you a Christian? Man, you're off course. Are you really saved? Man, you pass the test, you, you glove, but you're off course. Remember, even when I was in middle school, I had this guy come up to me, and I didn't even know if he was a Christian, but he said, are you backslidden? That was like sort of a popular term. Are you backslidden? 
some groups might say you're worldly or carnal, you know, all these things like, and of course, I quickly compare myself and thought, you know, I compare myself to him and thought, I barely cuss and I go to church every week. I mean, and so I, of course, dismissed that. That made absolutely no sense. My backslidden, like, bro, I'm saved. Like, I don't even know what you're talking about. I, I, I put my faith in Jesus at one point. Like, I mean, I don't even know why you would say something like that. But fast forward to high school. It's kind of the way I was. I kind of got along with a lot of different people, a lot of different groups. And I went to a lot of different parties where there was drinking and all sorts of crazy things happening. But I never participated. Meaning, I never got drunk, I never smoked, I didn't cuss. I thought I was a silent missionary. Maybe then, kind of fast forward, maybe about a year or so after we graduated, there was a kind of another party. We like went back to sort of that same old house where everybody would go and we would have these parties. There was just another guy and there was just one guy I was friends with. We weren't super close, but we were always together and we were kind of in similar groups. And he would he offered me a drink like, hey, man, you, you want to get drunk tonight? You want to drink? I said, oh, no, no, I'm good. No, thanks. And he looked at me like completely surprised and said, why not? And he was legitimately shocked. And I think I matched him because I said, I don't, I don't ever drink. My friend came back to me and said, Scott, what are you talking about? You were always smashed drunk with us. Like the rest of us, I mean, what are you talking about? You were always drunk. Like you were always here every week. And what do you mean you were always drunk? And I realized at that point I was really backslidden. But not because the things that I did, but it was the things that I should have done. I thought Christianity was defined by the things that you don't do. But instead, it should be that I'm actively living for Jesus, actively looking to share the gospel, actively living out my calling. And I realized all those years could have been wasted. I thought I was there. I mean, I wasn't doing all those things, but almost I might as well had been because my testimony was shot. It was completely ruined. Well, what are you talking about? You were always with us. You might as well, like you, what are you talking about? You were drunk with us. And in a sense, I was. I was tacitly going along with it. But Jesus said, we need to be active. We don't need to let life just happen to us. He said, let your light shine. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. And then going back to 1 John, we're kind of skipping around, going back up to 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. And he says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now, I need to go back. I need to explain what he's talking about here because he's not really talking about salvation. And I'll show you how I know that. He's not talking about some sin that you had in the past. He's not saying you can't just claim that you never sinned at one point in the past. But he's saying you can't claim that you have no sin now. The Greek word that he's using to be, it is the Greek word echo, which is present, which is to hold on to, which is to hold in your hand, which is the sense of wearing. He's not talking about a lifestyle, but he's talking about sins that you maybe stumble into or maybe struggle with. What he's saying in context, 
John is not talking about Jesus saved you from all of your eternal consequences, which, yes, he did, but he's not talking about that. He's not talking about, yeah, Jesus saved you from all of your sin, but he's talking about the sin that entangles you now. He's talking about the sin that binds you now. And he's saying, if you confess those things, it sets you free. And he's faithful and just, and he will forgive you, right? And he'll purify you. So he's talking about two different things. I'm going to forgive you, and I'm going to purify you. I'm taking the consequence of sin, but then I'm taking the reality of sin in your life away. But the thing is, we can do that now by confessing our sins, by talking about telling God our sins. I mean, the most freeing thing is knowing that God already knows everything that you think. And it's confessing it back to him. It's maybe finding a trusted friend in the Lord and confessing that back to him. Romans 12, 2 says, Therefore do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. And this pattern of this world is a cycle, it's a toxic cycle that we keep going back into. He says, but be transformed, where? By the renewing of your mind. But a lot of times what we don't notice is the verse before it is the way that you renew your mind. It's the way that you break out of that cycle. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, you have to be looking at a mercy beyond your current situation. He's saying in light of that Jesus came to save you. He was perfect. He didn't need you. He didn't gain anything from from dying on the cross for me. He did it for your sake. He gave up his life for you. He's beaten and bloody to a pulp on a tree and crucified, unrecognizable, so that you can be with him. He didn't gain anything, but we gained everything. He's saying in light of that, in view of that mercy, we all deserve hell. We all turned away. No one is righteous. Not even one person is righteous. But the only one that was righteous, Jesus, died on the cross for our sins in our place so that we can have freedom. We can have eternal life, and we can have freedom now. He's saying, in view of that mercy. But then the next part, he says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is your spiritual act of worship. If you find yourself in this perpetual cycle of healing, this perpetual cycle of relapse, this perpetual cycle of, man, I'm going to church, I have this experience, or maybe I go through this program or this process and I have this sort of feeling of experience. If you don't get out of yourself, recognize Jesus died on the cross, keep that constantly in your mind, and then you go out and help somebody else. The people that get out of that cycle is because they're constantly thinking beyond themselves. Instead, people think about themselves. What about my healing? What about what I deserve? When's it my turn to get what I need and I deserve? What about me? And you stay in that cycle. You stay in that perpetual cycle. But Colossians chapter 3, verse 2 says, Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Think on the right things. We need to stop letting life happen to us and realize that God is calling us to walk as Jesus walked now. 
You've been listening to Requip Ministries, and thanks so much for listening. And go ahead, head on over to our website for more resources. That's requip.org, R-E-Q-U-I-P.org. And you can always connect with me on social media as well. And until next time, we hope you follow the command to always be prepared for 